All right, book of Jeremiah. We're going to continue our work on the book of Jeremiah. And today, I know on Wednesday, we started working on the, the concept of backslider, backsliding. And we were going through all the places that it was used. Well, we may try to get back to that, but I think it's the perfect time to kind of do something. Some could argue we should have done it at the beginning, but I didn't want to do it at the beginning because for everyone participating and reading, you're supposed to have read from uh, up all the way through chapter six this week uh, to up to chapter seven. And as you've been reading, anyone who's been reading the book of Jeremiah will start figuring out really quickly hmm, the way language is being used in this book sometimes leads to a little bit of difficulty. So if you have the book of Jeremiah open, go back to chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 1. We're just going to walk through a couple of passages just to show you, and then we're going to do kind of a, a little, like kind of a little hermeneutical lesson on how to try to handle this and understand it, all right? So in Jeremiah chapter 1, it did not take us long to see... what I'm kind of talking about show up, all right? In fact, you go to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 11, we see this. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Now, immediately we know that him seeing the almond tree is it's not about just seeing an almond tree, but the almond tree is supposed to represent something, right? And so we had to do that it's a play on words. We had to work on that. Not only does he see the almond tree, what comes next? He sees a seething pot, verse 13. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot. The face thereof is towards the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north and evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. Immediately we know, once again, the seething pot, it's not just about seeing a pot. The pot does what? It represents something, right? It's it's figurative of something. All right, so we see it there, and we're we're still in chapter 1. And then we can go, we probably could find a a couple of more things there. But once you get into chapter 2, Then we start seeing things like if you look at verse, uh, we'll go to verse four, uh, we'll go to verse 15, uh, Jeremiah 2, 15. The young lions roared upon him and yelled and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Now, immediately we know that's not, we're pretty sure (laughs) that's not referencing actual lions, right? The young lions represent something. And then verse 16, And the children of Noph and Taphanes have broken the crown of thy head. Well, who are the children of Noph and Taphanes, right? That may be not as figurative, but still it's pointing us to something, right? Then uh, Then we have, if you look at verse 18, Now thou hast, and now... What hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? And what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Okay, so what is the waters, uh, you know, representing? Then if you go down to verse uh, 21, right? Yet I have planted thee a... 
a noble vine. Now we have the idea of a vine. We could go through this and over and over. There's, it, it happens constantly. There's this language used in the book of Jeremiah. And for those who've read all the way to chapter, all the way through chapter six this week, you've probably seen it over and over and over. And I wanted people to, to see the language, experience the language, and, and struggle with it uh, themselves. I wanted them to struggle with it uh, for themselves so that they could then try to figure this out. So this brings up, especially, it's a very important concept in hermeneutics, just in basic Bible study, is how do we handle, how do we understand figurative language in Scripture? What do we do with it? How do we understand it? We all are aware of all the difficulties it presents, right? Sometimes it's not difficult. Sometimes we're like, well, clearly that represents this. There are other times where it's not so clear and that leads to lots of disagreements. Not only that, sometimes the use of figurative language creates lots of like, okay, well, wait a minute. How do I, like, I think I can understand the picture, but then if I understand it this way, how do I understand that theologically? But that seems to go against our theology and it can create those kinds of problems. So we're going to take a step back and do just kind of a little bit of work on understanding figurative language and some different things to consider, all right? Um, and again, I wanted to wait. I, I, I personally feel like this is the perfect time to do so because of all of the figurative language just used. If you go chapter, uh, a little bit of chapter one, chapter two, especially chapter three, going, uh, and then even, well, even, I think throughout the whole book, but especially in those early chapters, You can just see it over and over and over again. So here we go. When we are considering figurative language, I want us to consider three factors that are relevant to whether specific words, expressions, or narratives in the Bible are to be interpreted figuratively, all right? So there are three factors. I want us to consider these three factors. And the three factors are genre, Subject and usage. Genre, subject, and usage. These are at least three factors to consider, all right? Three important factors. Okay, everybody ready to work on this? I hope. I hope it'll be important. All right, here we go. First is genre. Now, when we say genre, what are we referencing? What are we talking about? The type of literature it is. What kind of, what kind of literature are we uh, talking about? Uh, according to one source, a passage, a passage's literary form or type guides our reading of its language. A passage's literary form or type guides our reading of its language. Everyone should understand that, right? How you read, it's very important to you. I've got to understand the genre. You've got to understand what you're doing, right? Because if it's a historical narrative, you are going to read that radically different than you read poetry, right? You're going to read a historical narrative radically different than you're going to read apocalyptic literature or prophetic literature, right? The, you, we, I mean, this is, everyone should know this, but over and over and over, you'll see people forget this 
um, when Christians start arguing or start talking, or they won't even be able to identify the literary genre that they're arguing about. And then at that point, I don't even know why I'm having an argument because there's no way to have an argument at that point. But we have to. Now, with the book of Jeremiah, we run into some serious problems. Why? What is the what is the literary genre of the book of Jeremiah? What is the literary genre of the book of Jeremiah? Oh no, you tell me. All right. So, do we understand Jeremiah as simply a prophetic literary genre? There we go. This is what makes Jeremiah such a convoluted mess, right? Because it's a little bit of historical narrative at times, right? Gives very specific history, right, of what's going on in Jeremiah's life. And it's almost spoken in a very literal way, right? This king, this person, this country, right? So that's, that's almost a little bit of a historical narrative mixed in. What else do we have in the book of Jeremiah? We have prophecy, all right? So we have prophecy. And what happens sometimes in prophetic passages? Put it this way. Well, some, yeah, sometimes you, know, you, you can have a, 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 a short-term prophecy and then a long-term. So you, then you have to figure out the timing. Wait a minute. Has this already occurred or is it still waiting? You've got to figure that out. And then sometimes the language that's used. Sometimes the language is like, is that kind of a, is that a figurative? It's like the world's going to come to an end on all the stars being Right, right. And he's like, well, okay, well, did that happen? What, is it going to happen? Like, it's all, you've got language issues with prophecy, all right? And then what else do you have going on in Jeremiah? And poetry. <laughs> so Jeremiah has historical narrative sections, prophetic and poetic which I think I made some joke, which makes it pathetic because it's very difficult to understand at times because you're like, what is going on, right? And I, and, and I hope when people are, re- and, I, and I would challenge everyone, um, and, and I, I want you to do this for those listening and for the Bible study exercise, uh, what I would challenge you to do is go back through chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 and just mark out sections and go that's more narrative form that's that's more prophetic i think that's poetic and just kind of go through and just do that through the whole book because you'll see for yourself don't take my word for it notice it for yourself because i guarantee you when that happens you'll be like wow there this is going to be harder to read so you've got to find out the the passages Literary former type guides our reading of its language. Let me give you an example, all right? Let me give you an example. Um, well, I just got a, notif- a notification from Spreaker. I'm like, wait, why is Spreaker sending me a notification? You talk about waiting a long time. All right, here we go. All right, for example, let's just take the word road. Just take the word road, okay? Road, R-O-A-D, all right, road. And a historical narrative, how do you interpret the word road? Literal, right? Right? Would normally be taken as referring to a physical road, references to a road, and poetry may be referencing what? A path in life, right? Completely different, right? It's not a literal road. Right. Um, uh, and of course, 
prophetic could prophetic could go a lot of different directions, right? It could be it could be kind of a, a more figurative, it could be more literal. Thus, some genres are more likely to contain figurative language than others. Uh, the laws uh, and law of Moses are least likely to use figurative language. However, sometimes they do, okay? While well, where the poetry and songs are more likely to use what? Figurative language. So just, you can take one word, road, and again, you can just go through the, and this is what so many people don't understand. You can take one word, like road, and go through the entire Bible and keep track of all the different ways that it's used. It's a literal road. It's a figurative road. Like, like wait a minute, like, all in the same book. All in the same book. And what drives me crazy is, once again, people are, the Bible is, anybody can understand it. Anybody, and, but, that, I mean, right there, some serious problems. It can create some serious problems. Not that getting into an argument about a road is an issue, but the issue is, if we can't sometimes even figure out the word road, we're in, we're in serious trouble, right? Okay, so... Genre. So every, every, I think everyone can understand how genre plays a major factor, right? You identify the genre, that helps you understand how to interpret the words. Does that make sense? The genre gives you the clue and how to deal with the words contained within it. But if you read a book like Jeremiah and you're like, well, I think that's very history, right? For example, uh, Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 2. To whom the words of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, uh, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. We take that what? Absolutely literal. Literal, literal, literal. And But in the same book, we've got like, wait a minute, lions aren't lions. What is water? Water is what? Like, is an almond tree an almond tree? Is a seething pot a seething pot? And then all of a sudden you see, well, wait a minute, that's relatively. How can we have one section here? And so, that that's what I want you to understand is the the literary form, the literary style, the genre is absolutely key. All right, and, and in fact, I almost think that personally. I'm I'm pretty much to the point in in my, whenever you get into a debate with Christians, which is just usually a waste of time, but I'm almost to the point now that you almost start going, wait a minute, before before we're going to have this argument, I need you to do the following. Number one, what is the hermeneutical method you're utilizing? Number two, the section of scripture that we're looking at, how much time have you actually spent studying it? And number three, can you identify the genre of the section? And if they can't do it, if they... If they don't know the hermeneutical method they're utilizing, they haven't spent any significant time studying it, and they don't even know the genre of the section, why even have a discussion? I mean, you got a better chance of talking to a cow on the side of the road. Getting a, it's just a waste of time. And that's not about one being smarter than the other. It's just like there are certain things you have to know to be able to, to argue the things in the Bible. You just you have to. All right. So that's number one, genre. What do you think the second factor is? Well, I've already told you. It's subject. Subject. Right? Knowing something about the subject matter of a passage may help us to know whether a, statement's, a statement is literal 
or figurative. For example, knowing that rocks are inanimate objects naturally leads us to interpret Jesus' statement about the rocks crying out in Luke 19.40 as figurative, as a way of saying that the truth about Jesus will be made known no matter what. In a similar way, knowing that God transcends the physical world because he made it leads us to interpret the reference of God's throne as a figurative way of speaking about his rule over creation. So you've got to identify the subject of what's being talked about. Uh, well, not just the context, just, I mean, context helps you find the subject, right? So in other words, say in Jeremiah, when we're looking at some of this language, you've got to step back and go, okay, so what's this real subject here, right? For example, if the subject is the Assyrians or the Babylonians, if that's the subject, but then all of a sudden it's referring to lions and water, then you're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The lions here obviously are connected with the Assyrians. Or what, how, if, if, the, if the subject is Judah and then God starts referencing them as a plant, well, we know it's figurative because what's the subject? Judah. So then the language is not all of a sudden he starts talking about a plant. It's pointing to what? Judah. You got to identify the subject. You got to identify the subject. So any passage where, because sometimes, and this is just important, this is just a general principle. This is not even, I mean, I know everyone knows this, but, but it's, very, it's a very important subject in, or a very important principle in certain books of the Bible. And a book like Jeremiah, this is probably mo- maybe the most important point. Can we agree that you can get into the book of Jeremiah and there's such these little things are like, wait, what is, who's talking? What's going on? Like, there's all of these details that you can get so lost in the details that you do what? You miss the big picture. So with Jeremiah, it's always whenever you're coming to a section, you're like, wait, what's going on here? Wait, okay, this makes no sense. You got to stop. And I, and I, I think I talked about this Wednesday or even last Sunday. You got to stop and go, okay, let's just figure out what's the main subject? What's the main point here, right? And once I figure out the main point, then that gives me some idea in how to interpret the language. We may never come up to a clear understanding of why that language is being used or even what it's referencing, but we'll be able to at least say clearly it's not literal, it's figurative, or clearly it's literal and not figurative like you've just got to figure out the subject what is the overall subject that's being talked about if someone can't identify the main subject you're in trouble right you're in trouble like if you're in a section let's, let's say you're in the book of romans for example and the main subject is paul telling the the gentiles hey Israel's been set aside for a period of time so that you can be grafted in so that they'll be provoked to jealousy, right? And then, let, then he says some some point, all Israel's going to be saved. That's a pretty good, pretty good indicator. Well, wait a minute. If Israel's set aside for a time so that you can be grafted in and then they can be provoked to jealousy, well, if all Israel's going to be saved, that seemed it would still be Israel, Right? But some people will come along and go, no, 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 that's, that's the church. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So the church was set aside so that Gentiles could be come in and then the whole church could be, like, you got to figure out the subject, right? 
What is Paul trying to say there? He seems to be saying God is not done with Israel so that you can come in, so they'll be provoked, so that he'll go back. Like, you've got to identify the subject. And that I think sometimes we, we get so preoccupied with the details that we forget the subject. Does that make sense? Identify the subject, that will then help you correctly interpret the details. But we'll get preoccupied with the details. And then 16 hours later, we're like, wait a minute, it could be this, it could be this. There's 700 commentaries. And then you stop someone and go, well, what's the subject? And a lot of times people will then start stammering going, well, I, I don't know what the subject is, right? You got to figure out the subject. So what are the two main factors so far? Genre and subject. And then the third, usage. Sometimes we can recognize that a a particular expression is figurative because we've seen it used in the same way in other places. For example, Mary's question to the angel Gabriel about how she could become pregnant, seeing, I know not a man. Luke 1.34. That can be easily recognizing as using no in a figurative way to mean that she had not had sexual relations with a man. How can we know that that's what it means? Because it's used that way constantly throughout Scripture, right? Usage. So when you come to a term and you're like, well... It could be this way, or it could be this way. It's always good to stop and ask yourself, how is it commonly being used in the Bible? Or how is it commonly being used within a specific book? So, for example, whenever we're reading Jeremiah, yes, or everybody paying attention, whenever we're reading Jeremiah, Israel, Judah, is used a lot, yes? Okay, so how is it typically being used? Well, I've already given the assignment. A lot of people have emailed me their assignments. They, I told them to go through the entire book of Jeremiah and find every time Israel and Judah is used and, and write down whether it's figurative or literal. Guess what? Over and over and over, it is literal. Well, why is that important? When we get to Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant and it's made with the house of Israel, that's probably literal, right? So the usage, now that all that requires to figure out the usage is just time. Now, sometimes though it can be frustrating, right? Because sometimes you can have a term like, well, the word road. Sometimes it's literal. Sometimes it's figurative, Right? That can, become, that can be difficult. Now, if, if the usage doesn't help you, then what do you do? If, you, if you're going through it and the usage is like, well, I've got 50 times it's used literal, 50 times it's used figurative. What do, what do you rely on next? If the, if the usage doesn't help you, what do you turn to? Go back to the subject and go back to the genre. Okay, there you go. So in other words, you have all of these work together all right i think that makes sense all right um so those are the three main factors to consider all right those are the factors now we're going to look at the types of figurative language the types those are the three factors 
Now we're gonna look at the types. We're gonna look at the types of figurative language. How many types do you think there are? Eleven. Eleven types of figurative language, all right? If, if I was to give everyone a, if I was to tell everyone to take a piece of paper and write down, how many could you, come on, Sarah, how many? I, I thought you would get them all. No? Okay, well. I know, I was counting on her to know them all, because I, I, I just know there's 11, but I don't have them written down. No, okay, no, I'm joking, I'm joking, right? Okay. All right, here we go. Yeah, she can punctuate the, the literary language, right? I may know the types of them, but I can't punctuate them or spell them. Look, okay, here we go. All right, the first one. Let's, I'll, I'll throw out clues. Let's see. It starts with an S. Okay. No. S-I. S-I-M. S-I-M-I-L-E. A simile, all right, very good. A simile, all right, a simile. A simile is a comparison with something that is actually very different, made using, made using as or like. Like a rock equals sturdy or dependable. Does that make sense? A simile is a comparison with something that is actually very different, and it's usually made using words like as or like. Like this. As this, you are like a harlot, or you are as this, okay? That's a simile, all right? Um, biblical examples, look at Matthew 10, 16. I think there's one there. I think it's Matthew 10, 16. Matthew 10, 16. And I took this chart from someone by the name of Robert M., Bowman Jr. Okay. Okay, you see it? Wise as serpents and innocent as doves, right? Like sheep. Right. You're not real sheep. You're like sheep. And you need to be as wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, right? Well, I mean, I mean, that's using, that's using a simile, right? It's, you're, you are comparing something that is actually very different, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, go to Matthew 23, 37. Matthew 23, 37. Matthew 23, 37. Do you see it? As hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That means to protect them from harm, right? Matthew 23, 37. That's a simile. And, and again, just so if, if, I just want to make sure this is clear on the recording. This chart comes from Robert M. Bowman Jr. is where I got this chart that I'm currently using. All right? We could turn it into our own, but um, because there's nothing here, obviously, that was... I mean, this is stuff that people can find in Scripture, but this is a simile, and uh, it, we, we can see it played out right there in those Scriptures, right? So here's what I'm going to challenge everyone to do who's 
participate in the Bible study exercise. Here's some homework since I haven't given any homework. I need you to go through the entire book of Jeremiah and find all the similes. Find all the similes in the book of Jeremiah. All right? That should be fun. All right? You can take your time. You don't have to do it all in one setting. You can go through chapters 1 through 6 now, and then next, this coming week, we'll be working between 7 and 11. So chapter 7 and 11, so you can just do it as we go through the book. But find the similes. Find the similes. Right? Next. And again, do what? Metaphor. When you looked up the chart? Okay, all right, metaphor. I'm like, you got one of them, yay! All right. Metaphor, the next one is metaphor. What is a metaphor? It's a comparison, yeah, it's comparison like a simile, but... Okay, right, okay, I'll read it the way they have it. A comparison like a simile, but without as or like. The dawn of a new day is the start of a new day. It doesn't say as or like, it just says the dawn of a new day. Right? It just, it just states it in a more emphatic way, I guess is a good way of comparing. It's a comparison. It just doesn't use as or like. For example, go to Matthew 16, uh, Matthew, I think 16, 5. I may have to look at this. I may not have the reference right. Matthew 16, 5. Or I may have to read a large section here. Let me look here. Matthew 16, it's in this section here. So uh, we'll, we'll read through uh, all the way down to verse uh, 12, all right? Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 5. And when the disciples came to the other... I'm sorry, what? Yeah we'll, 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 yeah, we'll get down to it here in a second. Matthew 16, 5. And when the disciples were gone to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Right? You see it? It's very, it's, it's stated what? Just dogmatically, right? Right? It doesn't, yeah, it's just telling you, beware of the leaven of, of, the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, we know that that means what? It's their, well, yeah, we know it's not their actual leaven or yeast, but it's, it's being used as a metaphor of what? Their influence, their hypocrisy, that kind of thing. Look at Luke 12, 1. I think it uh, says something similar. Luke 12, 1. Yeah. Oh, well, now here kind of uh, describes what it is. Now, this one is a little bit more clear, but he still uses it. Uh, uh, Luke 12, 1. In the meantime, when they were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto the disciples, first of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now here it's explained what it is, which is hypocrisy. But he just says, he doesn't say like or as leaven, just beware of the leaven. All right. Then look at uh, Matthew 23, 33. Matthew 23, 33. Matthew 23, Yeah. I mean, it just, look how it's written. Matthew 23, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. Like, it's not like you are as this or like this. It's just stated that's what they are, right? So that's a metaphor. It's a comparison like a simile, but without as or like. 
right? Everybody got those? So what's the first type? Simile. And what language are you looking for? Like or as. A metaphor is a comparison, but it doesn't have like or as. So everyone listening who's participating in the Bible study exercise, your excitement to start working through the book of Jeremiah, finding all the metaphors. All right, what's the third type? We got simile, we got metaphor. Okay, well, that, that's coming up, right? I-D-I-O-M, an idiom, right? Okay, right. right, idiom. What's an idiom? <laughs> okay, a fixed expression with a distinctively sense, typically not obvious from the words themselves, often rooted in metaphor. A fixed expression with a distinctive sense typically not obvious from the words themselves. The example they, uh, uh, the, they use, kicked the bucket, or kick the bucket, okay? Kick the bucket equals die, right? Okay, so it's a fixed expression with a distinctive sense typically not obvious from the words themselves, often rooted in metaphor. Yes, they do. All right, here we go. All right, yeah, all of these are going to be found in the Bible. Oh, interesting. An idiom would could be very culturally influenced. That's a very that's a very good point. I didn't even think about that. That's a very good point. Right. True. Yeah, you learn because you learn like, you know, and, and someone comes from another country and, and and some of these references would be dated, but we're like, that's cool. And it would be like, oh, like it's cold? And it's like, no, it's it's good. Like a cool summer, right? Right. Whatever the case may be, and so uh, idioms can be so that can make it very difficult in the Bible, because if they're using an idiom, what do we have to figure out? We're separated from the culture, we're separated from the language, and we're separated by a long period of time. So then, so then, what we are usually have to rely on is someone else telling, trying to explain the culture. But it, then what can be frustrating is if you get four commentaries, all <laughs> you're like, well, who's the supposed expert here? That can be, and so and immediately what you do there is you step back and you have to figure out, go back to the subject, what's, what's trying to be said here, even if you don't quite understand the idiom. But this is some of the idioms they offer. Go to, uh, they have, I believe, Joshua chapter five, I believe it's verse one. Joshua 5.1. Do we see it? Yeah, their heart melted. Everybody see that? I can just read, I mean, we can read the whole thing. But Joshua 5.1, and it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan. Now, please note, though, how this can show up. All right, we're... In this passage, we're taking this very, this is very much a historical narrative, right? Very literal. When it says the water's dried up, do we believe the water's dried up? Right? Okay. We're, uh, and then 
uh, and they had dried up the waters, Jordan, from before the children of Israel until we were passed over, that, that their hearts melted. Now, we don't believe their hearts actually melted, do we? What does that mean? Yeah, they lost their courage, right? And that, that kind of thing is used in Joshua 5, uh, also Psalm, uh, in, the, in the book of Psalms. Uh, look at Matthew 18, 29. Um, I don't know if it's common if they express an emotion. It's just they're going to be, it's going to be using some kind of language like that. Uh, Matthew 18, 29. Now, this one may be a little bit harder to f- see. Matthew 18, 29. Let's see if anybody sees it. Matthew 18, uh, yeah, 18, 29. Okay. Okay, it's not, uh, okay, what, how does it, hang on, they may have the, uh, they may have the wrong, Hang on, they may have the wrong reference. Give me a second here. Um, yeah, they, uh, no, this is not, that's not the phrase. I look at. Go to, let, let's, I think they gave the wrong reference here. Look at, uh, hang on, we may come back to that one. Go to John 2, 4 and see if, it, if this phrase shows up there. Yeah, that, there's some stuff in this section, but I don't want to have to work on it right now, all right? Good. Yeah, okay, uh, John 2, 4, how did, what does it say? Okay, uh, they say, uh, well, okay, hang on, go, hang on, go to 8, I'm going to look at something again. Hmm. I'm, I'm looking at the Matthew 18. All right. The, yeah, yeah, that's what John, this is what they say. The what to me and to you, what business do you have with me? So in John 2, 4, it says, what have I to do with thee? They're saying that that's more of an, uh, that's a, what the word they use, or the, they don't really use the word. It's an idiom to, to mean basically, what business do we have in, uh, in regards to this particular issue? I don't really like that example because that's that's so hard to kind of figure out. Like, yeah, yeah, right. I think a lot of times that people are like, "Well, Jesus seems that he's being very mean or he's being very rude," right? When others are saying it's more just an idiom for that culture that is not to be seen as something. I guess that's what they're trying to articulate, but that would be hard for someone to pick up, right? That'd be very hard to pick up. That'd be hard for me to go. Right. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's more, that's definitely more like what time is he referencing, right? So, but um, I, I think the heart melted. We'll just go with the heart melted. That other one, 
look, look, we'll be, we've, we've, we, we have to at least acknowledge this. There are times where phrases are used that may be an idiom for the people of that time, right? In other words, they may understand it in a completely different way. But it's, not, it's, it's hard for me to say, hey, look for these kinds of idioms because how are we even going to recognize it? Again, especially how it's translated. You're like, well, that's just a question. But then someone may come along and go, but the, isn't Jesus being mean to his mother? That's not acceptable. Well, no, it's just an idiom. Okay, I can see why we may get there, but it would be hard to identify. It'd be hard to identify. So I will go with the heart melting is much better. So for this assignment, again, go through Jeremiah and see if you can find an idiom. And a fixed expression with a di- distinctive sense, typically not obvious from the words themselves. All right? Look for, those may be harder to find. I think we're going to, I don't think anyone's going to have a problem with the simile or the metaphor. The idiom is, is much more difficult. So if you can't find any, that's okay. All right? Next. That one, yeah, that, that one is a little confusing. That, that's okay. The next one. I'll spell it. E-U-P-H. Euphemism. Yes. Euphemism, right? Euphemism, right? I always want to put it in there. Euphemism, right? Yeah, E-U-P-H-E-M-I-S-M. All right? Now, what's a euphemism? It's in, they, this is how they define it. An idiom you used to refer indirectly and so more politely or delicately to someone or something. For example, visit the men's room. That's a more polite way of saying you go using the toilet, right? It's an idiom used to refer indirectly and so more politely or, or delicately to someone or something. Well, could be, yeah, definitely could be a euphemism used before. For, and they, and I'll just give these quickly uh, because we're, I don't, we want to finish this. We've already looked at it in reference to the word "no," right? The word "no." That's in the Bible. It's used in Matthew one, Luke two, Genesis. Have sexual relations, right? So I've no, I have not known a man that's a euphemism for I haven't had sex, right? Right, or I've had sex. Uncover the nakedness of. That's another euphemism for have sexual relations. It's found in Leviticus 18, right? If you uncover the nakedness of, it can be used in a way of, it's a euphemism for some kind of something sexual. Now, this comes into play. They don't mention this. I just remember this from a big debate that broke out in my Genesis class at Grace University in Nebraska. Um, see if I can find it. Um, see if I can f- find it. Go to uh, Luke 9.20. I'm not Genesis 9.20. Yeah, not Luke 9. Genesis 9. Genesis 9:20. You know, we all know the story. And Noah began <clears throat> and Noah began to be a husbandman 
and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, went backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. All right, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be unto his brethren. All right? Now, the whole the whole situation here is crazy, but a lot of discussion is wait a minute. When it says that he saw his nakedness, some believe this is kind of a euphemism for something happened. Something physically happened together. Like something went wrong here. More than just he saw something, something happened. And so had been done to him, right. And just because that phrase, to uncover nakedness or see nakedness, sometimes is a euphemism in the Bible to mean sexual relations. So it leads to a like, what happened there? And then if you look at the curse, like, wait, wait, who's being cursed? Wait, who did what? Like, what's happening here? There's a lot about the text that people get into. But there's times in the Bible when it talks about to uncover nakedness. It doesn't mean just to uncover and see. It's, it's referring to something more. Does that make sense? So those are a euphemism. It's an idiom used to refer indirectly and so more politely or delicately to someone or something. All right? That's a euphemism. So, obviously, the same assignment. Go through uh, Jeremiah and look for all the euphemisms. All right? We got to go through the next ones quickly. Everybody understand that? Got it? All right. Okay. Makes sense? Okay. So, and just, there's been, and just, so it's not just me. There have been books written on what, what happened inside that tent. I mean, there, people have been debating that for 2,000 years of church history uh, because there's lots of like, and why is Canaan cursed? Right? Who, who did it? Ham, right? Correct? Right? Everybody see that? So that raises lots of questions. Like, wait, what's happening here, right? And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And then, and then look at uh, verse 25, and he said, curse be Canaan. And you're like, wait, what, what happened? Like, what's going on? Like, there's all kinds of debates about it. I'm not saying th- that a euphen- understanding euphemisms will fix that. I'm just saying that a lot of people are like, mm, seeing the nakedness has to be more than just seeing it. That, that, and, and because some people say that phrase can ref, recur, refer to more as in Leviticus where uncover the nakedness means sexual relations. However, you can also make an argument against that argument. So whatever. All right, next. We have simile, we have metaphor, idiom, euphemism. Next, irony and sarcasm. Irony and sarcasm. Well, they put them together, just kind of uh, link them together, all right? Now, irony and sarcasm is language that says the opposite of what is meant for effect. Irony tends to be witty and more subtle, while sarcasm tends to be more biting. All right, irony tends to be witty and more subtle, 
where sarcasm tends to be more biting. I never, I never love sarcasm. I hate sarcasm, all right? To be sarcastic there. All right, but obviously, this is important to know irony and sarcasm, right? Because if you don't pick it up in the text, you're going to be interpreting it, right? Like, there are some people who are not very good with picking up sarcasm or irony, right? Like, you're being sarcastic, and, and, and the person, and you're like, well, they obviously did not get that. They took that very literal, and you're like, okay, never mind, okay. Like, and so that's usually, it's, it's not really, I guess it can be fun to be trying to use irony or sarcasm with some people who don't get it because it's almost like your own personal joke, right? They don't get it and you just kind of laugh to yourself and they never catch on. But it can be frustrating if, you use a, if you're someone who uses lots of irony and sarcasm and people don't get it. You're, then it gets frustrating and you're like, well... I guess, but typically your sarcasm is clear enough that it, it should be clear. It should be clear enough. I mean, it should be. Put it this way. It, it can't be considered lying because clearly it's used in the Bible, okay? Paul loved it. Paul used it frequently, all right? Um, okay, um, for example, um, uh, in, he uses irony, some say in 1 Corinthians 4, 8, where he says, you've already become rich. You have become kings without us. That he, it's irony. He, that's not exactly the way that's meant. Or sarcasm. How the king of Israel distinguished himself today in Second Samuel six twenty. Who? How the king of Israel distinguished himself today? That's it, it, it's sarcastic. It's, uh, one is First Corinthians four eight, and the other one is Second Samuel six twenty. And I'm only I'm on, the only reason we're not looking them up is for time's sake. Right? So someone can go, oh, wow, you really distinguish yourself today. Right? If your kids say that to you, mom, wow, you distinguished yourself today. That may not mean a good thing, right? They could be being very sarcastic. Right? Does that make sense? All right. So there's irony and sarcasm. Guess what's next? This is the one you said earlier hyperbole, which I never use. I hate hyperbole to be sarcastic or to be use irony, right? Hyperbole. What is hyperbole? Oh, and just quickly for anyone, again, listening, go through Jeremiah and find all the irony and sarcasm. Now, you got to make sure it's irony and sarcasm. You understand how drastically that could impact the interpretation, right? That could have massive interpretive chaos, no, he's not being serious. He's being sarcastic, right? I'll never forget uh, I, someone I went to church with, and, I, and he was in the military. I was in the military, and I went over to his office, and he had posted, like in his office, this art news article about the evils of Halloween, right? And I, I, I come up, and I can start reading the article, and I kind of look at him, and I look at the article, and I look at him, and I'm like, why did you post this? Because Halloween is evil, and this, I'm like, that's sarcasm. It, it's mocking you. <laughs> you're, you're, he didn't even realize, like, the whole thing's mocking you. What do you not get? It's beautiful sarcasm. It's, it's mocking you. Like, how do you, and, uh, and so finally he took it down and then felt stupid. I'm like, you got, if you can't read, don't post things that have words, okay? Like, that's a good idea. Like, don't do it. So, um, yeah, and sometimes Paul does some very, even Jesus is a little bit sarcastic sometimes. Even Paul, 
Like, you got to know, you know, what you're reading. You got to know. Like, that's scary when people can't see it or don't understand. I think it's people's personalities and the way they think. Like, since I love irony and sarcasm, I'm going to catch it. Where other people may like, and I'm like, no, that's, uh, that's, that's not exactly how I meant that. But okay, okay, it's all right. Well, sometimes I'll get an email about something I said in a podcast. And I'll be like, you didn't get the sarcasm there? It was, it was dripping. It was so, but okay. Hyperbole, the same thing can get me in trouble, all right? Hyperbole is an exaggerated or overstated language, right? Uh, it's an ex- exaggerated or overstated language. For example, tons of money. It's not actual tons, right? It's just a lot of money. Well, sometimes I have to because I'll look at expressions. I'm like, oh, man, people didn't catch on to that. So I'll have to explain. I would prefer not to, but, but you know, because it kind of runs the fun, right? But just so note that tons of money, that can be hyperbole, but what else can it be? Well, I, I don't know if anyone's going to have tons of money. Okay, that would be actually weighing it. I mean, I, I guess if someone actually had tons of money, but I don't know if anyone's ever weighed money to say that it's tons. I don't think I would ever take it literal. Okay, but it could also be what? Because I would do this if a little kid go, look, I got, I got 10 cents last night. I'd be like, whoa, you got a, tons of, a ton of money. I would be sorry. I would use it as a sarcastic way, right? Oh, you got a ton of money, right? Oh, wow, you know. Okay, I would, I would probably use sarcasm with it as well. Right? And then the little kid would be like, oh, I got a ton of money, mom. And I'd just like, oh, yeah, all right, whatever. Okay, I was mocking you, but okay. Right? right? So it can be used both ways. Make sense? For example, and I think it's Mark 133, the whole city came out to see him. Did the whole city come out? Well, it just, it doesn't matter how it's being used. I mean, rarely the whole city is coming out, right? So if I see the whole city, I'm going to have to really look at the context here because it's most likely what? It's, it's, now it could be again sarcastic, right? The whole city obviously showed up for church this morning. That's sarcastic, right? Okay. Or I could be like, whoa, the whole city showed up, and it would be hyperbolic, meaning a lot of people are here, right? Yeah, yeah, a lot of times it uses that kind of language, right. Um, uh, another example, if your right eye trips you up, pluck it out. Well, that's hyperbole. I don't think anyone's telling you to take out your eye or cut off your hand, Right. Hyperbole. Now, once again, it can be used. See, for me, my problem is I typically, sometimes I'll use the hyperbole, hyperbole in a sarcastic way. So that's when everyone really gets confused. But I, you can use hyperbole just to exaggerate to make a point. But I can use hyperbole in a sarcastic way as well. So, you go, so once again, when you're in the Bible, you've got to figure out, is that hyperbole? And is that hyperbole to make which point? Or is that hyperbole being used in a sarcastic way? That, that's, that's important to understand that kind of language. So once again, your assignment, go through Jeremiah and find the hyperbole. All right. Next, we got, oh, we, well, actually, we'll stop now, and then we'll just have to finish this the, 
the next hour. We'll have to finish the next hour. It, I don't like to do that, but it's already after 11. And I think we've got people out of town, so some ways we should, should just continue and then just stop and go home. But we'll take, we'll take a, a break, and then we'll come back and finish it, all right? So um, you'll, you can obviously see how this can greatly impact how you interpret a book, how you can interpret a passage. But let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. We are grateful that as we grow in our understanding of the use of language and how it's used, it helps us grow in our understanding of your word. Help us be better students of that so that we can be better interpreters of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...